It's really lovely to be here, and I hope you can forgive me for sitting, but standing for long periods of time is still not something I'm able to do. I thank Sam this morning to sing away in a manger. It's really beautiful. It's the second Sunday in Advent, and we remember the peace of Christ through the candle lighting. And as I share these words with you this morning, I just want to inform you in advance that we'll be talking about quite sensitive topics. So please bear with me, and because it'll all work out fine in the end. It's wonderful to learn more about the women in scripture and the lessons that we can glean about their place in the plans God had for our salvation. And this morning we're gonna think about a woman called Rahab and the part she played in God's kingdom. It all takes place a long time ago actually in the late Bronze Age, if we're specific. And Rahab would play a large part in what happens when the Israelites conquered Jericho. It's an exciting and amazing story. As a, as a child going to Sunday school and singing away in a manger, I don't really remember her part. The thing I remember is this, and I'd ask the sound guys to play this little video for us. One of our next guests, one of uh, the warmest, and at the same time, one of the most dynamic personalities I've ever met. When you hear her, you will understand why she is the world's greatest gospel singer, Miss Mahalia Jackson. Battle of Jericho and the 
how we used to sing it in Sunday school. <laughs> what an amazing performer, and it takes me right back to my youth at Shettleson Baptist Church in Glasgow. And I love those songs still. And the thing that most affected me was God's power in the event. It was enough for all of the Israelites to march and march around this walled city and then blow trumpets and shout as loud as they could and the walls fell beneath their feet and made a ramp that they could walk in. Astonishing. In my young understanding, I knew Rahab was a prostitute and she was there. I never paid much attention to her. After all, she was a prostitute. So it was, I was really interested in the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey, the famous radio announcer, would say, if anybody remembers him. As this story opens, the Israelites were camped at Shittim. So here they were again, just outside Canaan. They had been there before, 40 years before. After Moses led them from Egypt, they arrived at the borders of Canaan. So Moses sent spies into the land to check it out and see what was there. Twelve spies to see if it was good and whether they could go in and enter. But then something happened, and I'll go back to my Sunday school days, and if you know this little song, you can sing it with me. Twelve men went to spy in Canaan, ten were bad, two were good. What did they see when they spied in Canaan? Ten were bad, two were good. Some saw giants great and tall, some saw grapes and clusters fall, some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad, two were good. <laughs> that's, that's how you remember these stories. For me, the music does it all. So only two of those 12 were truthful, and the rest put a fear into Moses and the people. And instead of trusting God and taking the land, Moses decided against it. He believed those lying 10, and as, as a result, God was very displeased. All of the things they had witnessed, the power God wielded on their behalf to bring them to this place, they'd lost their faith and they didn't believe in the power of God. God granted them that so that they would be able to conquer this land. So the people were punished. And in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, the sorry story unfolds. Moses listened to the grumblings and the complaining people, which they had done all through their del deliverance. Oh, I don't like that manna. Oh, quail again? Can we not go back to Egypt? God was treated with contempt and disbelief. After all they had seen and been through, they had no faith that God was able to bring them into Canaan. And the result was that God punished them. And they spent, I think it would be a miserable 40 years, wandering again through that desert. None of that generation would ever enter the promised land. Not even Moses. He could see but he wasn't allowed to enter. The only ones who could were the two honest and faithful spies that had entered 40 years before, Joshua and Caleb. And now here they were again. Moses passed the leadership to Joshua and then he died. I'm thinking about what happened inside Jericho. They must have been looking out saying, they're back. Here was this great nation back again. And we get an indication of the feelings in this, inside the city 
when we listen to Rahab's words as Laurie read them to us, she said, I know the Lord has given you this land. We're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one, no one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. The people in the city heard of this people of God, and they had heard the stories of the plagues and the death of the firstborn offspring, the parting of the, red, the great waters, and the God who granted them so many victories over many kings and nations. And now what? They were back, and the people of Jericho were afraid and curious. What were these nomads going to do now? Were they going to advance, or were they going to go away as they did before? I want you to imagine this city of Jericho. This city was incredible. Archaeologists reckon that it was the oldest city in the world. It was set in a strategic location with major trade routes passing right through. So it would be filled with many merchants, be very multicultural, I imagine, in makeup. It would hold wealth by being in this position too. It was also known as the city of palm trees, as the land was fertile and had rich soil for growing their crops. It had the Jordan River and streams and rivers nearby. And because it was in such a place, it could be vulnerable to attack from many nations. So it was heavily fortified with walls. The walls stood 50 feet high. Because of the land, the people were crop farmers, unlike the nomadic Israelites who were shepherds. Now, they were pagan, and they believed in a variety of gods and goddesses, with Baal being their primary focus. He was the god of fertility, and as such, many of the religious practices were terrible for us looking at them now. Rituals very violent and depraved. They were known to sacrifice children to appease gods when things were going badly. Sometimes the bones of those sacrificed would be wrapped and placed under the foundations of houses for good luck. In the temples, it was common to have prostitutes there as the god of fertility would be honored by the acts they performed. And the belief was that the crops would be more fertile and abundant. Fertility at the springtime sowing of the crops was important as that was their livelihood and they depended on a good crop yield. So we know that God condemned these rituals but this is the culture the Israelites were facing. So then in that time, prostitution was an earthly pleasure, yes, but it was also part of their pagan religious practice. And I would imagine these women were held in a higher place within the society and maybe not thought of as we think of women like that today. And they weren't detested, this act was detested by God. When I think of Rahab, Maybe she had held quite a good position within the city. After all, she knew the king and acted as a spy for him. And in rabbinic literature, in the Midrash, Rahab is named as one of the four most beautiful women the world has ever known, along with Sarah, 
Abigail, just like my Abigail over there, <laughs> and Esther. I think her beauty would garner her a high position within the hierarchy of the society. Maybe she held a position within the temple, and now, because she was probably wise, she could have her voice heard in high places. The king went to her to find out about these spies. She was well aware of all the mumblings in the city, and she had listened to these stories, and unlike her fellow Jer Jer Jerichoans, she took in all of the God stories of escape and deliverance. And maybe she had had enough of this city and its awful ways. I think she had had enough of the gods of Canaan. How do you think I can infer this? Well, I'm trying to put myself in her shoes. I'm thinking of her actions. And as a woman, I'm trying to imagine why she was willing to shelter these men. She was willing to risk her life by taking these guys in and hiding the spies. That was really brave. She knew that at any moment the guards could come and if these people were found, she and probably her whole family would be killed and the spies would be killed and probably their bodies would be displayed on top of that high wall for all to see as a warning to others who were thinking of going against this king of Jericho. It was a way of keeping people in line. But she wasn't going to be afraid. Had she had enough of those tyrannical things that were happening in her city and the king and those pagan ways? Those actions show me that this woman was desperate to get out. She may even have been the victim of seeing her own child sacrificed to these pagan gods, and she wanted no more of it. These wooden and stone god idols, not like the God of Israel, that God showed such power and cared for his people. He performed astonishing miracles to free them and bring them to a place of plenty. Oh, I think she was ready to do anything to get out, and she would do anything to be free. She wanted something else, and that something was the Israelite God and the liberation that she believed only he could provide. So she grasped at the chance to speak to these strangers. She knew that if the Israelites planned to attack, then there would be death and destruction and the whole city would perish. So she lied to the guards and then made a pact with these spies. She would be able to escape with her family. So soon the advance began, but not as a traditional battle. Again, I wonder what they must have thought of inside that city, looking out. So they saw them marching, then another day, another march, then another day, another march, so on for six days. What? That must have been a kind of psychological warfare. What were they doing? Have they lost their minds, these Hebrews? What kind of battle is this? No one was trying to climb over the walls or ram the gates, only marching and marching and marching and marching. But God knew and the people were obedient. That's what they were told to do. Then on the seventh day, a change. They marched around seven times. Then the great trumpets sound, and the people shouted. Keep shouting, little one. And the walls fell. I don't know about you, but I'd be terrified at that sight. 
Fear and terror must have then gripped the people of Jericho, and I suspect some Israelites would have been kind of astonished too, because I think some of them must have thought, really? Walk? Do what? <laughs> I think God and jo Joshua has just lost his mind. But that's our God, an awesome God. Rahab believed that powerful God. Even before the walls fell, she believed. And she and her family were saved. I just want to add here that many Christians have a hard time reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of peace and love in the New Testament. The book of Joshua is filled with violence and death and battles with enemies perishing by the Israelite sword. God told them to destroy everything and everyone. They weren't to take anything out of um, Jericho except gold, silver, bronze and iron, which would be given directly to the Lord. Nothing else was taken. Not even grain, which really would have been a valuable resource to have. It sounds awful, but we have to remember that if anyone were to survive, there was a good chance that one day they would get together and wreak a blood revenge on Israel, and that would lead to more war and distress. And if any, anyone from Jericho survived, they would no doubt still worship their own gods, and that would be a temptation for the people of God. Remember, many times the Israelites fell into that trap of idol worship, and it never ended well. And although this was harsh, it was God's plan to help and protect the Hebrew people so that they could continue to grow in faith and in number as well. We tend to look on our, our other cultures through our Christian Western eyes. So we really don't really understand what, what it's like to be in that situation. And it's hard for us to put ourselves into that revenge and religious zealot mindset. Here are the things that I really learned from Rahab's story. The first thing is that Rahab had faith. She had such faith. Faith that we read about in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and then verse 31, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute didn't perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She had never seen any of the miraculous things that the Hebrew God had done, but she believed. She believed the stories that she probably heard from her childhood, and that was enough for her. And her faith took her and her family out of danger and set her free. Rahab was also obedient. And that's a quality the old Hebrew generation didn't have. They disobeyed God continually and spent an agonizing 40 years wandering around until they were all gone and a new generation emerged. She listened to those two spies and she did exactly as they told her to. She passed down that red cord and death passed over her and her household too. And it reminded me a lot of the story of the Passover. And for me, I'm not good at the obedience thing. I want to have things my way. I want to have control of my life. 
I'm not totally committed and I struggle to serve God and be obedient to him. And you know, although we're not idol worshippers, we do struggle in our society to put God first in every part of our lives. We're prone to desire so many things. We want our own kind of fun. We depend on relationships which can be so destructive. And we can fall into addictions. We desire fame and fortune. Although I think I'm a wee bit like Tevia in The Fiddler, Fiddler on the Roof. If I were a rich man, oh, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? You know, that kind of thing. But instead of putting God first and obeying him, there's so much to tempt us into following our earthly desires. But I want to be more obedient as Rahab was. And finally, Rahab chose life with God complete and whole. I have no doubt that she didn't feel too good about the life she had led. She probably felt broken and despicable. But then God took all of it. Only God can take all of our brokenness, our past, our pain, our addictions, our sorrow, and all of our mistakes and make it whole. Many think that having a past with mistakes Big mistakes can ruin or exclude us from God's love and blessing. Can I really have that joy and that love-filled future? A future where I feel free and whole? I'd like the guys to put that image up on the screen. Oh, here it is. This is the Japanese art of kintsukuroi. I think that's how you pronounce it. When the Japanese mend broken objects, they don't, they don't throw them out, they mend them. They aggrandize the damage by filling the cracks with gold. They believe that when something's suffered damage and has a history, it becomes much more beautiful. It's called golden repair. And that's what God does. He takes all those broken pieces, our guilt, our shame, our sorrow and our shortcomings, and he molds us together with his gold. Our past then gives honor to him, and we can take our place with his people, knowing that our brokenness can help others through their journeys. God can take all of us and use us to further his kingdom. That's Rahab's story, but it's not the end of the story. She had faith, obedience, and she changed. She became great in the, God, in the plan God had for the redemption of us all. We need more of her story in the Bible. She lived with the Israelites and married Salmon, and she became the mother of Boaz. Does that name ring a bell? Then Boaz married Ruth, who was the grandmother of David, a shepherd, a poet, and a king and a direct descendant of Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us all. All of our lives are important to God. He wants us to, wants us to have faith to obey so that our brokenness can be used to honor him and further his kingdom. Just look around at all of our friends here. Don't we look beautiful? 
Each one you see is broken, and some of us have more gold than others. But that's okay. It's just wonderful to be able to see that God will use each one of us, and we honor God in our brokenness, and we will be blessed. And Jesus told us he would be broken, and he was broken for us, so that we can be filled and filled with his golden beauty. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that we can always come to you, no matter what we've done, what we've said, or who we are. You understand what it is like to be broken, and in your love for us, you came to us, became as we were, broken so that we would be able to understand, be healed, and live our beautiful broken lives, being thoroughly blessed by you. Amen. Thank you.